Morning, Christ Church. I want you to be in prayer on the theme, birth order. It really does matter. With somewhat of a Nicodemus moment, last Saturday morning before daylight, I traveled from my home in Westchester to Newark Airport to get on a 5 a.m. flight to go to South Carolina, we're really North Carolina, the church is on the border, for my aunt's funeral. Did I say the flight was at 5 a.m.? <laughs> Felt like I was traveling in the dead of night not so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. But I traveled in the chilly, chilly New York cold, brisk winter moment that it was. I boarded a plane, and we went for this funeral, my maternal aunt. And the entire day, for me, with so much to unpack. Because of course I flew back that night. You all saw me last Sunday morning, right? I made it, and in the words of my grandmother, I wasn't half baked. <laughs> but in doing that kind of trip with all that came with a funeral, and it wasn't one of those moments where you have a funeral where you, know, you go out of obligation, the family, you have to show up, but I'm thankful that my sister, brother, and I represented our mother. This was, again, my maternal aunt. And it was important to be there. I loved this aunt dearly. And she had been the only surviving aunt to my grandparents, uh, that maternal line. Put your seatbelts on. Y'all don't have to ride with me for a minute. She was the one surviving aunt she had a twin sister who died many years prior, who predeceased her. And in that line, my aunt, my mother, had been one of 12. And again, in the words of my grandmother, she had six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. Y'all know that expression? So my grandmother had six single births and three multiple births, three sets of twins. You don't make families like that anymore, right? <laughs> so this aunt, my mother's, at that time, youngest sister, born to my grandparents, who survived her deceased sibling, twin sister, we were surrounded by, can y'all go with me there? You understand what I'm saying? So she was one of a set of fraternal twins. And fortunately, when we looked at the pictures, when we scanned the room and the repast at the end, there were at least, there was at least one set of twins remaining and one sibling to another set of twins. You got your seatbelts on, right? So we had a great time celebrating her life. And as funerals go, you know, there were moments of great sadness. My aunt and my uncle 
had four of their own children, and they had their own children, and even some great-grandchildren who were there. And this aunt had been, as I said, my mother's youngest sister, born to my grandparents in marriage. Twelve children came out of that union. And we talked about all of the things that kept us, of course, connected. And at times we have these sad moments, but in a way, my uncle, one of my uncles, the baby brother, y'all get that still, baby brother? It's like a Southern thing. So my, one of my uncles gets up and he gives remembrances, my aunt, and because of all the siblings, he shares a story that I don't think I was really familiar with, but it had to do with my aunt and her new husband when they married and the response of my grandfather giving his consent, which was a very big deal. Very big deal. He just didn't give consent to anyone that might have presented for one of his five daughters. So this was a big deal. It was a wonderful story. Some of us didn't remember it, but it gave us a chance to try to connect the dots. And so at the repast, we're talking throughout the whole day, and I got a chance to connect with a first cousin. She and I were born just several months apart, and it, it just was a wonderful thing. So we talked about my uncle's story, and then we situated ourselves among those siblings. And my cousin, and I remembered this, but the way she described it at that time over the meal, the repast, in the church's fellowship hall, after the burial, in the cemetery with a whole lot of other family members, we were talking, and this particular cousin shared how the story of our uncle reminded her of something about her father, who was, yes, one of another set of twins. Are you with me? Her father, this first cousin of mine, had been married, and this cousin was born the seventh of their seven children when he was married to his first wife. She died, the first wife. And then this cousin, who had enjoyed being the youngest, the baby girl of seven. That's enough right there, right? Then becomes when my uncle, her father, remarries the eldest of all of the siblings yet to come from the new marriage, and there were six. So she was once the youngest of seven, and then by virtue of her mother's unfortunate death, her father remarried, she becomes the eldest of seven. You're with me? <laughs> that just tells you a little about some of the dynamics on that day. And one of the things we began to talk about quite a bit had to do with birth order. Because if you can imagine, if at one point you, as a child even, enjoyed the privileges of being the baby girl, and then you become the eldest child, is a very different experience in life. And her story and her trajectory continues on so that she, being a mature person at a time when she could discern how many children she would have, would only have a single child. <laughs> no wonder, right? So this child, my cousin and I talked, we caught up, we hadn't seen each other for a while, and we talked about how, for each of us, she and I were there last in our grandparents' church, the family's home church, when my grandmother died. 
and how we remembered elements of the sermon that had been preached when my grandmother died in the summer of 1999. I hadn't been to this church. And so it was a great time. I've seen some of these family members, but you know how it is when you get together for a funeral. It brings different family members together. And we had a good time and we talked and we reminisced and we remembered some of the, again, some of the points and elements of the service for my grandmother in this very same church, the Cedar Creek Missionary Baptist Church in Waysboro, North Carolina, right at the line of South and North Carolina. And one of the things we talked about was how in the sermon that the preacher then preached, and unfortunately it wasn't the preacher who'd served as my grandparents' pastor, who had at that time uh, succumbed to, well, he had experiences of early onset Alzheimer's, and his wife, the then pastor's wife, did not want him to embarrass the family, so she asked that the family consider a different preacher. And how the preacher for my grandmother's funeral went on and on about, at one point in his sermon, my grandmother, before birthing her own 12 children, had pursued and continued in life through her children even to pursue her B.A. degree. Born again degree. (laughs) Put a tag right there. I'm going to come back to that. But the whole matter of gathering, seeing my uncles, those who remain, seeing others, their, you know, children and siblings and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it was quite a head-scratcher for some of us, trying to make sure you understood the connection. And this is whose daughter? And this is, wait a minute, you are, wait a minute, you're so-and-so's son. You know, you go through those moments of trying to keep it all together, and it just caused me to think as I pondered this text and thought of Nicodemus, it made me just think of birth order and have to ask you the question today, are you the firstborn in your family? Perhaps you are the youngest. Or maybe a middle child. Maybe a single child. Hmm. It makes us wonder at times when we think of birth order, and I think about Alfred Adler, a disciple of Freud, this order or birth order was very important, for he, Adler, was the original birth order theorist. And just as there are many who strongly believe in the importance of birth order, we can find others who will dismiss this theory as simple, simply a myth. I believe that the order of one's birth does have an effect, however, on one's character. And you see this often if you're ever working with people, and even in marriage, you'll see it in premarital counseling and working with couples in marital distress and just family dynamics, all the familial trappings of being in families. We think about, at times, birth order. Whether it be because of the psychology and belief of others to perpetuate the theory of the birth order, or whether there is some validity to the theory itself, what I know is this. The firstborn child, or one with the role as oldest, would be most likely to take on a leadership position, or so it is believed. Like when people stick to rules and order and strive toward achieving goals, and they set the pace, I like that psychoanalytic theories now include how 
siblings pace one another, and we've moved beyond that mother-child or that parent-child dyad, how if you don't have a good enough mother, you don't turn out so well, paraphrasing. Winnicott, if you will. But if we look at the firstborn, there are certain elements and characteristics that we may find can bring to light some interesting features about a person. The firstborn may be sensitive to being dethroned by a younger sibling who comes onto the scene when they've had the pleasure of enjoying the parent's full attention, am I right? Before the younger sibling came. I had one little cousin ask the parents, when would the child go back? I think that cousin had a Nicodemus experience too. But when do they go back? I, I don't want to be bothered any longer, but they don't go back. Not through flesh and blood. But the youngest child may feel less capable at times and experienced and perhaps is a bit pampered by parents and older siblings as a case where, as a result, the youngest child may develop social skills that will get other people to do things for him or her thus contributing to the, their image as being charming and popular. We have some of those. Then there's the all too easy to ignore sometimes middle child who feels robbed of the prized youngest child status or the firstborn status and at times may feel rejected or just simply hmm, cast aside as they are often vying for attention, right? trying to make sure there's some elbow room and they can find themselves in the family, featured prominently in the center is where I would find myself as a middle child, squeezing in, pushing brother and sister aside to make sure you didn't forget, yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm here. But, you know, we look at birth order and you, then you have to take into elements of gender and all those things because although my brother is the eldest, as a firstborn girl, there are some of those features and, and ex expectations that were placed upon me. But that's a sermon for another time. I thank God for therapy. <laughs> Let me hasten on to say that if perhaps you are a single child or you've had some of those experiences as what we once would often call the only child, it's not just a matter of having been spoiled, rotten, but there's a possible advantage of receiving, what, all of the attention of your parents and others, right? But then there's, unfortunately, the same chance of receiving the same level of scrutiny or an intensified level of scrutiny while always vying for control. We all fit in here somewhere. Somewhere. And yes, because this is a theory that we have all come to know about the birth order. The question is, does it matter? Some would say yes, and others would say no. It doesn't really matter. All children are different. We're just individuals. And yes, it's up to the individual. But what does matter is the birth order in the spiritual realm. Yes, we all know that in the natural, it is important and considered a privilege and honor to be the firstborn, especially if it is a boy. This goes back as early as biblical, our biblical narratives and continues until today. But this is not so much in the spiritual. See, for we understand that the birth we received by our mother, mother and father coming together, however that comes to be that a child is procreated, this natural birth is one that is very important, and for many it is the only birth. 
It is the first and the last birth. But today, church, we learn that there is another birth, a birth that is a little, well, a lot more significant than the first birth. A birth that is a lot more significant than the first birth, because today we meet a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, one of the respected leaders of the Pharisees, had come to Jesus with a sort of hesitant curiosity. Nicodemus, an important figure for the faithful Pharisees who were also like a great family. Yes, they knew who each other's ancestors were. They knew where each other was from, the town, the the actual tribe or location. They knew the firstborn and birth order in each family. They knew those family dynamics. But they also knew because there was a certain level of responsibility that was assigned if you were indeed the firstborn. Nicodemus, a man who moved in circles of orthodoxy, circles which do not accept the teachings of Jesus. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night almost in secret, addresses Jesus as rabbi because he wants to be trusted, doesn't even ask a question at first. Nicodemus, before he asks for anything, he says to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Sisters and brothers, there was something about Jesus, something about this man that compels others to take notice. Nicodemus knew that this man, Jesus, was commissioned, that he came from God. Jesus responds, giving Nicodemus a new understanding about birth. And Reverend Cole read for us what the response and the exchange was like. Jesus responds giving a new understanding which blows his mind. Nicodemus had his mind blown like my little cousin at one point asking, could the child go back into the mother's womb? into the belly. Can the child go back? Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, which according to our birth order theory, he was most likely a firstborn child. Nicodemus, who if caught with this controversial figure, Jesus, comes to Jesus seeking an answer, comes to Jesus seeking information, comes to Jesus seeking reassurance, comes to Jesus seeking clarity. No question, but knowing that this Jesus is the very presence of God. Not concerned with platitudes, Jesus responds to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Most of us today have heard this before. We've heard the phrase translated as being born again. You must be born again. Yes, it could mean that or you must be born anew. But basically, the word means from above. You must be born from above. The necessity for this is imperative here, which includes, of course, the necessity that you're going to have to be born again. It means that you and I will have a second birth, a spiritual birth. So yes, in some ways, Atlas theory might not matter in the natural world, but what Jesus says about birth order does matter. What Jesus says to us today is that the first birth is not important. For everyone experiences this first birth 
Everyone has this experience, and yes, we have no agency in the matter, except at the moment when we show up. We don't get to think about, pick and choose the date. We don't get to do all of those things that would maybe help it easier for our parents. We just show up at an appointed time, not having chosen even to come. The first birth is not as important because this is the birth that will definitely bring death. But the second birth, the second birth from above is everything. And everything is what Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus understand because it brings new life. The second birth brings hope. The second birth brings us the very spirit of God. No one can see the kingdom, Jesus says. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So yes, you must be born again. I dare say, when many of us hear that kind of talk, we imagine big revival tents and altar calls. We think of fiery TV evangelists and quick, shallow religious experiences, which may not be quite our cup of tea. I get it. We may think of Pentecostals and holiness churches and such, and thus we are quick to dismiss the term. And that's too bad. That's too bad because in this moment, what Jesus is saying isn't relegated to just a, a select few of folk who want to call themselves evangelists, a select few of folk who are aligned with Pentecostal or holiness churches, a select few of people who might gather still in revival tents and experience altar calls. What Jesus is talking about today might be the most important discipline of the Christian life. He is talking about defining our identity, not by earthly standards, no, that's where Nicodemus got tripped up. But by spiritual standards, Jesus agrees with us that our births are important. Yes, our place of birth, how we are born is indeed important. He agrees, I believe, that this first birth is important also. However, he wants us to know that it is the second birth that really matters. And why does it matter? Our Lord wants us to be born entirely anew. From above, our identities shaped by something other than who our ancestors are, the places where we were reared, or our first birth. It's a very individual experience in so many ways. Because church, to be born again is more than just remembering when you entered the Christian faith. To be born again is more than just an emotion-filled moment, a charismatic experience, if you will. But to be born again is more than just remembering your baptism. Yes, all of these experiences are important. But being born again, being born from above, being born of the Spirit and of water is a transformation from the inside out. A reorientation of the self, not toward the world, but directly toward our God. To be born again is to have a spiritual experience, not a physical birth. To be born again is to renounce the values that separate us from God by receiving the Holy Spirit. Yes, Christ Church, you and I must be born again. No matter how many times you might have wanted to run from it and eschew that language, this being born is not a once and for all event. No. As we find in the writings of Paul so often in the sacred text, 
We are doing this over and over again. We are to be born again, over and over again. And this is what the Lenten season is all about. Lent comes as a reminder that we are to be touched by the Spirit of God in rebirth. Lent comes and prepares us for the journey and the wilderness moment with Jesus so that when Easter comes, we understand the power of the resurrection. Or if I were in a Baptist church and I said, when Easter comes, we're ready for the resurrection and the power that it gives to us, I believe that might get an amen. (laughs) The point is, As difficult as it may have been to hear that, to understand that, to see the TV evangelists, to hear others who are not aligned so much with your denomination, your theology, your spiritual views, any doctrines that were ever poured or deposited into you, we cannot negate the experience of a rebirth. For if we look to Jesus, that's what we're saying we want. And in the Lenten season, that's what we're saying we're doing. We're seeking to draw closer to him so that, yes, we might experience life anew. Yes, we might be refreshed by the Holy Spirit. In some way, we have to know that the second birth is a big deal. The second birth is recorded for all time. The second birth is when we have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. The second birth is the time when we receive the Holy Spirit and the text tells us that after you have received the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have power. It's at the second birth. For when we read in the text, we read that all things have become new. The old things are passed away. The question is, have you been born for the second time? Have you been born for the second time? Has the Holy Spirit been knocking at your heart, waiting for you to just allow it to enter in? Yes, birth order really does matter. 